Welcome to the Circular Economy podcast by the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. Welcome to the Circular Economy show podcast. I'm your host, Seb Reed from the team here at the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. Earlier this year, we published a paper called The Big Food Redesign, which identifies that ultimately the food we eat is the result of design decisions. So how do we redesign it and who are the key actors who need to make that happen? Our publication pointed towards food manufacturers and brands as playing a pivotal role in the system and needing to move towards creating products that are nature positive working with farmers. In this podcast, I speak to Gabriella Galindo from Danone's Plant and Dairy Division about the importance of storytelling and the creation of iconic products. But first, I caught up with Karen Cooper, the R&D Climate Programme Manager for Nestle, about how their organisation is approaching the circular economy. To get us started, I wonder if you could sort of tell us almost your 90-second comic book origin story. How did you get to where you are today? Uh, that's a great way of putting it. Um, okay, so my, my current role is the R&D Programme Manager for Climate Change. But I didn't start out that way. Uh, I started out as a nutritionist, so starting out with biology, moving into nutrition, uh, and then joining industry. And then over the time of my industry, for the past 10 years, I've worked on the, um, the kind of midway between sustainability and nutrition and what that means for, for a company like ours from a, an R&D sense. So for me, it's been a, a real uh, chance to, to bring my personal feelings on sustainability to bear. I think I joined Friends of the Earth at 15. So for me, it's always been a, a personal passion. And so to bring that together with my academic background has been uh, really cool. Where does the desire to be a nutritionist come from? Is that like you're just fascinated by food? What is it just, is it science? What, what uh, bring that to life a bit for us? Uh, for me, I, I wanted to help people. My first project in nutrition was to go to Nigeria and work with kids with malaria and vitamin A deficiency. So it was a chance to really make a difference to people's lives through nutrition. And uh, what we start to see now is that it's not enough just to work on nutrition, right? We need to bring in the more complex picture of, of what it means to be part of the food system. And so that's why um, this, this shift into bring that nutrition part into sustainability has been you know, such an interesting area. And so you described your role now as, as R&D manager what, uh, on climate change. What does that actually mean? What, what, what do you actually do? And what's a day, what's a day in the life like for Karen Cooper? Um, I spend a lot of my time talking to our sustainability managers around the world. So each one of our R&D centres has someone uh, really working on sustainability and, and driving it through our innovation process. So most of what we're trying to do is change minds, change mindset, really trying to bring it alive for people, uh, make it a reality in their day-to-day, and make sure that every decision that they're making, they're thinking, is this going to help climate change? Is this going to really make a a difference? Will this decision point us in the right direction? And I think what we want is for that to become so embedded. Uh, And so every day I speak to people, every day I try and bring a little bit of structure. We do a lot of training. Uh, we put systems in place to make it as easy as possible for people to make these sort of changes. And I think that's that's really been key for the past year. But the, the next um, the next uh, part of this journey is really to put in really cool projects, projects that wouldn't necessarily happen naturally, to really push ourselves to really learn a lot more about what we need to do. And I think that's what's really been exciting for the past uh, the past year is to really set up some really unusual pieces of work. It's interesting what you, how you kind of described your journey, because in some ways nutrition is science, right? I mean, the, there, is, there are some facts and data that sit behind what healthy nutrition looks like in different parts of the world, in different contexts, for different people. 
Um, but when I think about your journey, it sounds like now you're actually working on people's mindsets and approach to it. The, the information is out there, but there's something about actually how we think that needs to change. I think so. I think um, there's a lot we don't really understand about the interconnectivity of the food system. And I think uh, one of the nice things about working in this area is that you need all sorts of backgrounds to make that difference. Yeah, it's not like uh, us as a nutritionist or as a sustainability person can really solve that. So we all need to bring our science, all our, our um, expertise to bear as part of that, and then make sure that what we do then connects into the wider food system. So I think no, there's no such thing as a, a simple science anymore in this context. Uh, I think now you've really got to take that macro view, and it's people that's going to make that change happen. You know, and um, changing the food system is is also part of changing people's diets, which is a really tricky thing to do, but not impossible, not impossible. All these things have changed over time and they can change again. Uh, I've often heard the food system get described as kind of the mother of all systems, like it's a, you know, a huge macro um, challenge and, and, and the people in the circular design team here at the McCarr Foundation often talk about this notion of zooming in and zooming out, that ability to zoom in to specific users or individuals or communities to solve problems, but then the ability to kind of zoom out, kind of what you were describing there, the ability to zoom out and look at the whole system, which is a kind of slightly new skill um, for those of us who are working in this world. It is, it is. And I mean, I come from the training of doing uh, clinical trials where you want to make a change. And so you control the system and you make a change and you expect, you know, if you give A, then B will happen. But that's not systems thinking. Systems thinking requires you to take that step back and really understand that interconnectivity of how all these things start to work. And what we see now is that universities are starting to put training in place now for students in systems thinking. So it doesn't matter what sort of background you have. If you have that layer of systems thinking on top, that's going to be really, really valuable for us moving forward. So Nestle have, in the, over the last five years, probably longer, have come out with a range of commitments on being climate positive, on being regenerative. What does that mean for you and your role and how Nestle designs its food products? Yeah, so it's really important that we start with uh, understanding the impacts of what we're trying to make. And so, I mean, this hasn't changed for us. We've been doing this for about 10 years now and really understanding the impacts of the products that we want to change. And so we have tools and we have methods in place to try and make that happen. Um, but the very first thing is, is understand your hotspots. So take your product um, and do an analysis, understand what, what where you can act, what you can change, where you should focus, because there's so many different things that you could change. So it's really important that we really focus down on, on the key first steps for that particular product. And that's particularly in the case of renovation. So every one of our products comes up for renovation regularly. And so it's a chance to really make those changes as part of the standard renovation cycle as well. So it means that no product is static over time. And so um, the very first thing we look at is the recipe, because we know that two thirds of our impact as a company is our ingredients. And so we can really pull apart that recipe and understand where those impacts are coming from. Um, for us, we use some really key ingredients that are probably not going to disappear out of our portfolio. So coffee, cocoa, dairy, these are really key ingredients for us. And so that means you've got to go into the field. You can't replace them necessarily. You can't necessarily always change them. So we have to go into the field and really do that. And so what's been changing for us recently is um, bringing more science to bear about what happens in the field. So we've got some really interesting uh, research going on in, in dairy, for instance, to understand what technologies we can bring into the field to reduce the emissions of the cow and, so, and then the resulting milk. Uh, and for, for coffee and cocoa, we 
uh, do a lot in plant science already. So really understanding um, what's behind uh, a successful coffee or cocoa plant and making that as efficient as possible. So we use the least amount of land and least amount of inputs for that. So now we can, you know, we really bring that to bear to make sure we have the, the least impactful key ingredients uh, of all. But that's for the key, the key ingredients. For the other ingredients of which we have many other thousands of ingredients, uh, we really have to consider what we can do to, to change those or replace those or also make those least impactful. Uh, and there's many different ways that we can do that. Uh, we change ingredients all the time for other reasons, for nutrition, for clean label, many other reasons. So we just add this one in the mix and really try and make sure that we have the, the decision making in line. So when we make a change, we make a change to also reduce impacts. Um, but that's the main first place to start. Two things kind of stick, well, there are many things that stick out from what you said, Karen, but just to pick up on two, um, there's something about the scale of this, right? There's so many thousands of products that Nestle are producing all the time, and that you know this, that that's the challenge in its own right. Just the scale of the operation and how optimized that has been for a certain system over a period of time. Um, and the second thing is, you talked about almost starting with the recipe. Many times when people think about kind of climate change and ingredient or diet shifts, they they automatically probably think about I don't know moving to eating less meat, for example. But it sounds mm -hmm. like um, in Nestle's products, um, you're actually looking at something more that you're actually looking at the full ingredient portfolio this isn't just about a simple switch from eating meat to being vegetarian yeah i mean certainly that's one of the first places to look um but we actually don't in the big scheme of things sell that much meat and so um that's not necessarily the first place that that we would look um Dairy, though, dairy for sure, that the movement towards plant-based dairy has been, again, a really exciting one for us. And uh, we have been able to make some really interesting innovations in that space. Uh, I think we see consumers are really open to, to going in here in, in this particular area of, um, of milk replacements, if you will. I think that the really rich area um, beyond dairy is, is to create new plant-based options for people. People are looking to make these changes in their diets. And I think we have the, the real opportunity to make that um, an easy change. And I think that's one of the roles that we have here is if people want to make these shifts, if they want to move away from a high impact product to a low impact product, let's make that as easy as possible for them to put that into their diet. So let's make it tasty. Let's make it affordable. Let's make it healthy you know, and sustainable. So this juxtaposition of all these four things, I think this is going to be one of our biggest challenges moving forwards uh, in, in R&D to make sure that these uh, these innovations that we're putting out there really hit that sweet spot. And if we do have to make trade-offs, then we understand those and look to mitigate those over time. In the Foundation's latest um, report, uh, the Big Food Redesign, we talk about um, how do we make nature-positive food the norm and, uh, and explicitly talk about how do we design with nature as opposed to kind of working against nature. Uh, one part of that is how do we make the most of what is grown? And I know that Nestle have done some work on that. What does it look like to design food products working with nature versus against it? I think there's, there's a few different elements here. So um, the move towards regeneration gives a new focus on, on uh, certain practices with the farmers that can build on, on biodiversity and, and uh, reducing waste and, and side streams. So I think each of those brings a new nuance into what a product innovation could look like. So there's biodiversity in the field with the farmer. If they bring in crop rotation, for instance, I mean, what else are they rotating with? Is that bringing us a different ingredient? Is that a different way that we can work with that farmer to make sure that we can look at all of the things that are going to grow through a crop rotation? So we can try and support the farmers through those sorts of shifts to bring in those sort of practices. 
but also work to help them bring in more biodiversity in the farms means maybe you know, more biodiversity we can also draw from our products. So can we seek out more diverse ingredients in our products that will draw better practices also from the farm and de-risk those shifts away from monoculture for, for the farmer? I mean, the other aspect you mentioned, of course, is, is side streams and um, use of, of uh, waste streams. So we've got some really interesting kind of uh, first pilots in this area. It's uh, really intriguing to get people thinking differently about ingredients. We're very uh, historically you know, not used to necessarily looking at this. So it's opening up a whole new level of thinking for our, our people to, to think about things that we normally see as a, a side stream, as a potential ingredient to bring back into the system. So, But one part of our business does this all the time. So our pet care business is, is normally using normal food system side streams and bringing that into products. That's one of the main reasons for, for pet care to exist is to, is to valorize these types of side streams and make sure that, that they have a good use. Um, but from the plant side of things, it's um, much less usual. And so it brings along a lot of questions. So for instance, um, you know, we have to make sure about safety. We have to make sure about taste. You know, what nutrition does it bring to bear? Things like this. Um, but it's been really interesting. The, the, the examples that we have are um, different sort of approaches. So one way you bring more of the whole of the product, more of the plant into the, the same product. So we have a, a chocolate called Incoa, which is 100% from the cocoa pod. So it's using um, obviously the cocoa beans, but it's using um, the white that surrounds the cocoa beans within the pod and using that to create the sweetness as part of the chocolate. So all of it only comes from this. And it's a chance to, to show that we can use these types of side streams. And it's a nice kind of win because the farmers, we also get to pay them for that extra ingredient as well. Uh, something that might have necessarily gone to waste and or maybe just composted. This way we can try and keep it in the food system. Um, other aspects are things where you maybe create a brand new product with that side stream rather than trying to put it into the same product as the original plant. So that would be an example of something like cascara, which is the berry that sits around the coffee bean, the red berry. Uh, normally, this isn't really valorized. Occasionally, it's composted. Sometimes it's even an environmental um, detriment uh, when it's not really treated properly. And so if we can bring that back in, we've been making drinks with it. It's, it's a berry, so we can make drinks with that. It has got a nice kind of fruity, refreshing taste. So it's a chance also to innovate brand new products, things that we wouldn't necessarily have made before. And there's something about, you know, if you're taking co, there's something about the story of that product that helps you in the communication with the end consumer of that chocolate mm -hmm. that you then learn as kind of an, a constant dialogue, I guess. Um, I guess, oh, sorry, go on. No, I was just going to say, I mean, I think it's, it's really great. It's a chance to really talk to people about how their food is growing and where it comes from and who makes it. You know, I think um, that linkage back to the farm, that that feeling of being uh, of shortening that distance between where you are and where the farmer is, and, and creates creating some more knowledge with consumers. I think it's a great opportunity to, to teach more about the food system and, and make more transparency. Is this a business opportunity for Nestle? Because I guess there are some aspects of this, like developing new products presumably costs money, maybe working mm -hmm. with farmers who are changing their farming practices, there might be at least in the short term some extra premiums on that type of farming. But but is Nestle approaching this from a kind of, this is also a business opportunity for us, as well as obviously the other benefits that come with it? I, I think for us, it has to be a business opportunity. For us, if we don't change, you know, there's a really huge risk in not changing. And I think as long as you understand what is coming down the line, um, most businesses will recognize that they have to be a part of this journey. 
And I think um, with with going first, there's always risks, but there's also great opportunities with that. A chance to really explore new things, uh, a chance to um, trial new products really quickly. I think that's something that we're also trying to do is, is get st- get new products out quickly. And then we can understand if consumers are, are interested in these types of things as well. So it's not that um, we want to um, uh, how do I say, take far too long to make these sort of changes happen. If we can innovate, get pilots out, get new products out really quickly, get people interested and, and moving in this area, the opportunities really will come from that as consumers start to understand more about their food and what they want to look for in that. Often internally, um, we have conversations at the foundation about ambiguity because we have this, uh, we, we are, you know, promoting and developing this idea of a circular economy. We talk about it being based on three principles, eliminate waste and pollution, circulate products and materials, regenerate natural systems. But in many ways beyond that, there's a lot of ambiguity in terms of how do we get there? What, what don't we know about it yet? Um, is that also true in terms of the conversations that you're having in your role with the kind of Nestle ecosystem, trying to help individuals who are making dif- decisions to understand what's possible whilst actually not knowing a lot of the answers or even necessarily all the right questions to ask? Yeah, I I think it's a learning journey for all of us. Uh, And I think um, we're lucky in the fact that we've been doing sustainability for quite a long time. And so building on the the, um, nuances of circular economy and and regeneration, you know, this is is just um, the newer lens through which we can look through sustainability and to build in um, those extra opportunities as part of that. But, um, you know, since we've made the the climate pledge uh, back in 2019, we have seen real fundamental shifts in thinking. I mean, we've been working on climate change for, for a very long time, but this new pledge, this new change, making such a bold statement externally, it's it's a, a real unblocker, if you will. It really moves people and it speaks to people. And I think that's what's really cool about this is that we start to really not have those conversations about you know, you know what should be done. It's more about when, it's more about how. You know, and it's um, it's moving us further forward. We we accept that it's not going to be necessarily perfect the first time out, but if we wait for perfection, we'll never move. So we learn as we go. We keep trying. If we're going to fail, we fail fast, and we move on, and we learn from that. And ideally, we can uh, inspire others as well with these types of changes. Uh, and we will also learn from others as we go. Yeah, we're certainly not alone in this. We see our our, um, our the other companies out there making very similar shifts to us. And there are certainly great platforms out there where we can discuss those uh, early issues, uh, such as your own, your own sorts of platforms. And, and these are great because it means that we don't have to you know, spend too much time worrying about um, the, the details that will happen in, in the partnerships. Us as product developers, we can be sure that the company will make the move and we follow through with, with the reality of what it means for it to get that into a product. And I think that's what's really key is that we don't have to wait for a perfect consensus to move further forwards. As an individual, what do you hope your impact will be in this space in the next five years or so? Um, On one level, I I guess I'd like my job to become obsolete. I mean, my reason for my job is to get this change to happen, is to really fundamentally embed it in what we're trying to do. And so it becomes just a, a normal part of the way of working. And so if I've done my job right, you know, then I wouldn't need to do it anymore because it'll be so, so embedded in our day-to-day life. Um, the personal impact I'd like to have is that, you know, the, the products that go out of our door are doing good. 
you know, not just doing less harm, but actually doing good. And to me, that's the main goal that we want to aim for. And, and certainly for me personally. So that's one perspective. Let's hear what it's like on the branding and marketing side with Gabriella from Danone. I wanted to kick off um, whether you could just give our audience a bit of an insight into uh, your kind of journey. How did you get, what inspired you to get to the role you're occupying today? Hi, Seb. Uh, First, thank you so much for having me here. I'm very excited for this conversation. Um, So a little bit about myself. I'm Mexican, originally from Mexico City. I'm an engineer by training and I actually started my career in marketing. Um, And in a way, I joined Danone over 10 years ago in a pure marketing role. And uh, after navigating different brand roles across Latin America, I landed into a particular brand that was a kids beverage portfolio with a mission to actually get more kids to drink plain, simple water, which sounds like a very obvious thing, especially for people in Europe where safe drinking water is accessible. And, you know, there's a lot more education about health and nutrition. But actually, I realized within this role that, one, we have the highest, um, we're the number one country in terms of childhood obesity. And a lot of it has to do with what kids are drinking. So we have the highest incidence of uh, intake of sugary beverages. And I realized that by doing something with this brand and driving, you know, making water exciting and enticing and driving behavior change, I could have a real positive impact. Um, I partnered with different organizations and NGOs to find ways to, you know, change this at the system level with uh, education, setting up access to safe drinking water in schools, bring an educational program to get, get kids and moms to want to drink water. And I realized that after this role, I just couldn't go back to any other brand and do traditional marketing. So at that point, uh, this was 2013, I thought, you know, I don't, I don't want to do this anymore. And I, and I want to know more and, 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 and really learn how I can have an impact. And I was always a firm believer in business as a force for good and for change. So I went to business school, focusing on social innovation, passed by a nonprofit working on uh, social innovation, again, in bringing uh, safe drinking water and sanitation to um, urban populations in Africa and Bangladesh. And uh, at the time when I was having this role, I got called back to Danone and they said, look, we're looking for someone that has strong business marketing background, but also knows uh, sustainability and social impact to uh, drive our sustainability agenda within the the business and strategy community in Danone. And so that was five years ago, almost, that I moved uh, to Paris to the headquarters and I started this work within the water division first. And now I'm overseeing sustainability within the dairy and plant-based business unit. It's interesting the way you tell that story because, um, you know, uh, probably the immediate association with something like marketing would be maybe something more cynical. Maybe some, and, and I guess like there's there's truth to that as well. There's truth to some of the marketing forces that are about I don't know getting people to buy more stuff, for instance. But you're talking about the kind of uh, impact and importance of actually stories, connections to products in driving other outcomes as well. Your water story in Mexico exemplifies that. And I guess some of the work you're doing now, um, I wonder what, was that what appealed to you about it? Cause you said you just trained as an engineer, right? That it's not, it's not like you had a yeah. marketing background or education that drove you into that particular field of work. Um, it's funny that you mentioned this because uh, when I came back into Danone, 
uh, into this role, this role which actually reports within uh, what we call the growth strategy and innovation team. So I was reporting into the chief growth officer. The first thing I asked was, is it marketing? Because you know, I'm done with the marketing. I don't want to do marketing anymore. But the reality is that there is a role and there is a fundamental way and reason why these roles exist and even more so and increasingly so in FMCGs. So I would say that, uh, and, and, I, and I found, you know, a lot of value in actually being able to navigate between these storytelling, communication, innovation, marketing, more inspiring part of the equation. And on the other side, I guess I'm the translator with the, the experts and the science and, and really the, 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 the more perhaps hardcore issues and impact um, and then bridging that back into, into the business and the brands. So um, Perhaps I can tell you a little bit more about, you know, what the impact specifically of my role is that will make it more tangible and the differences between this and other roles in Danone. Because obviously uh, we have tremendous, uh, we have big ambitions on regenerative agriculture and climate change. And there are obviously many people tackling this ambitious agenda at Danone. Each of them has a different mandate and responsibilities within the transformation. As I mentioned before, mine in particular sits within the dairy and plant-based business. So that means that I am integrating all of these initiatives, climate, regenerative agriculture, packaging, uh, within the strategy, working with the heads of each region across markets and across different functions to land this from policy and big company corporate commitments into tangible plans and projects that actually make it happen on the ground at an individual business country, and I would even say brand and portfolio level. Um, so that's where, you know, it, it, it becomes exciting because in FMCGs, fast moving consumer goods, the consumer goods are actually driven by the marketeers. And that's where I believe a lot of the big change can come. So your role is, to, so as you mentioned, known as an organization, as a, a number of public commitments, quite, um, you know, compared to the market, quite ambitious public commitments on regenerative agriculture collaborations on uh, reductions of CO2 emissions on circular economy. Um, and your job in some ways is to translate those commitments into actual changes at the product level to some degree and how that's then communicated to people who buy those products. Exactly. That's a great summary of, of, of the role. <laughs> and um, uh, I wanted to talk a bit about empowering brands. I guess like your work, is that is that part of your role? What, how do we empower brands in this space to feel uh, confident talking about some of these topics or that becoming part of brand stories and, and actually changing products? Definitely, definitely part of my role. And I would say that the question should be rather than empowering brands to act, how do we empower the people behind the brands and the brand owners to act on this? Um, and I was reading your report, actually, and you mentioned, you know, 40% of agricultural land in Europe and the UK is influenced by the top 10 FMCGs and retailers. Uh, FMCGs, and especially within FMCGs, the brand owners are those that are able to design how we eat, what we eat, what it looks like, how it tastes, if, it, if it's good for your health, and if it's sourced in a way that's good also for nature and the planet. So by tapping into those brand owners, uh, that's where the magic comes. And that's where, you know, we have the first positive start to enable the transformation of the rest of the portfolio and the products through innovations and renovations. In terms of how I would say um, it probably boils down to three things, uh, or at least in my experience and what I've seen, uh, giving permission, upskilling, and rewarding. 
why I say giving permission, and this sounds like a little bit of a weird sentence, but actually, you know, many times I find people, and especially because, you know, I come from marketing saying, you know, I find other marketeers saying, oh, you know, it's so great that you get to do all these things and have an impact. And actually they don't realize the power they have to change. And these challenges and these issues seem sometimes so big and so daunting that it feels like they don't have the agency to act and create change. So by allowing them to see the role that they have and giving them permission to start and to act, it just opens up possibilities. The second, as I mentioned before, okay, once they've been given the permission and they feel they can be agents of change, there's definitely a need for upskilling and showing how things are done. So that's where we need the experts to really help us to unpack the language, to inspire them, to simplify topics and language, and actually lead with examples, show them how things can be done. And then the last one that I mentioned is rewarding. Um, and I think it, it's, it's really important to make it crystal clear that this is a company priority. And incentivizing that, obviously, at a personal level, there's a, a personal motivation that I mentioned before. People want to act. But I believe as well that there needs to be, um, this needs to be integrated within the company incentives. Uh, for example, within Danone and our objectives, we have societal and environmental targets within our individual targets alongside growth and economic objectives. So I think this is something fundamental to, to help us, you know, drive these change from the brand owners into what the brands are doing eventually. And uh, you mentioned our paper, the, the latest publication, The Big Food Redesign, and that fact about the influence and opportunity that uh, large food manufacturers and retailers therefore have to kind of influence change. It's quite interesting. I, I, a lot of our audience are from business segments and will have some knowledge of their own business dynamics. And I guess it's very habitual to kind of understand the complexity that we live in and oversimplify maybe what we're, we're experiencing outside. So to imagine a company like Danone as a kind of homogenous mass that works together, you know, in one place. And of course, there are lots of individual stories actually living within the organization, individual brand, individual products. Um, you talked a bit there about the kind of agency that brand owners have. One of the things that we talk about in that publication, Big Food Redesign, is the role of iconic products, because that feels like one of the spaces that almost any, because there are cost implications, right, to changing your entire product portfolio. Yes. There are lots of, and we'll talk about some of the challenges and barriers in, in a bit, but one of the opportunities is to almost create these products that give you a kind of communication point with the end customer, consumer of the product, but also with the rest of the organization, I guess. I cannot agree more. And I actually love that you mentioned the iconic products in the in the report. And we actually have, you know, internally we call, call them manifesto SKUs or manifesto ranges because we realized they were very important for a number of reasons, these iconic products. Um, on one side, it opens up people and the organization to the possibilities of what can be done in maybe a safer test and learn approach. Uh, it also enables food designers, as you call them, or, or marketeers in the RNI department to be bolder and more creative and rethinking and showcasing the potential of circular food for consumers and customers. Um, and I guess by doing so, I mean, you start small, but you're also creating the future demand for diverse, maybe sometimes unknown ingredients or, you know, the way in which products and ingredients are sourced in a better, more regenerative way um, that allows the rest of the portfolio to eventually follow. Um, I'll give you an example. As you said, you know, many of these things stem from individual stories and examples and, and smaller brands or, or iconic uh, Products And I really like one of the um, examples from a North American brand, Too Good, which launched only last year an innovation called Good Safe. 
which is using verified rescued upcycled fruits within the product. So actually marketed and, and you know, communicated as such and, and verified. Uh, in terms of impact, this innovation has managed to uh, save and rescue close to 100,000 pounds of lemons and pumpkins. From the business side, very promising results. The lemon flavor has a highest rotation in Target. And what's also super exciting is it's, it's, it's been awarded very recently, a very prestigious innovation award. So on that side, you know, you're showing that it's real. You're showing that it can work, that it can have business, business success. And we're now actually, well, the True Good brand has recently been launched in Australia, and we're now exploring the expansion into other markets. So it's, it's, it's quite a promising, uh, you know, very concrete example from a brand that is also, you know, starting to innovate within these more iconic and, and uh, circular design um, products. Clearly, there are um, this kind of movement of redesigning our food, um, supporting regenerative agriculture, having positive impacts on the climate, those that you know there are there are lots of benefits but of course Danone of course are invested in this as a business and therefore uh, in, I've heard many people from Danone speak about it as a business opportunity but is the kind of nuance that you're describing there is yes it is a business opportunity but it's not always easy to measure what that business opportunity is because the current metrics probably measure it more on the 12 to 18 month cycles that you were just describing absolutely I think you've nailed it there uh, and we need new metrics and we need also ways to show that, you know, how do we calculate these intrinsic things or the, the, the externalities in a better way within the PL and uh, and within the time frame that is very different, as you mentioned, and as I mentioned before. Yeah, we were talking obviously before this conversation, um, Gabby, and you said something that kind of fascinate, fascinated me, which is that you know, many of the known's brands have very established stories, having been around for decades, hundreds of years, some of them. How hard is it to change that story in the context of the kind of regenerative commitments, doing more good in the world, circular economy, climate positive? It's pretty hard, um, you know, because in a way, these brands were born with a uh, certain positioning, certain storytelling. They are known, perceived uh, for, 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 for being one thing or two things uh, that don't necessarily incorporate this because, indeed, they were born 100 years ago. Um, so if we don't incorporate the storytelling with key proof points, with the right partners to bring credibility, with uh, the right storytelling and the right use of touch points in media, you know, actually, it can go really wrong because it's like you're talking about X for a hundred years, and out of the blue, you start to talk about Y. So even if you do that, if you are, you know, even if that's true, if you don't do it in the right way, the first reaction of people and your consumers will be like. Okay, what is this? Why why is this brand talking to me about something completely different? So it's really important actually to to bridge the two and to work on a journey to move and shift that positioning to start to do first. So we talk a lot about story doing and then couple that with storytelling and always with really clear projects, clear ambition and strong external partners to vouch for the work that you're doing. It feels like that kind of that story, that reconnection of ourselves to our food and the people who are responsible for growing our food or creating our food is uh, is part of that new 
uh, cross-value chain perspective that marries what customers are kind of looking for or wanting to understand with the values of this new kind of food redesign economy? Um, maybe I will quote uh, a research that we commissioned very recently with Futera and Bloom, uh, where we analyzed over 225 million online conversations about food to understand exactly, you know, what are people talking about? What, what's, what's this connection with food and, and other things? Um, and, and we realized that actually stemming from the pandemic, we saw the conversation about the people behind the food, behind the food to soar to the top. Um, we realized consumers and people stepping up and wanting to support small, vulnerable food producers, being more connected to where the food is coming from, how it was produced, supporting local communities as well, local retailers, and realizing that whether they are near or far, the people who produce our food should be valued and supported, which is not always the case, and should be seen as environmental stewards. And also people that are in the end, the providers of the essential nutrients that underpin our health and everyday lives. Uh, at Danone, we have been for many years really close to our sourcing. We have uh, and we buy our milk directly from over 58,000 dairy farmers that are located around 300 kilometers, you know, around our factories. And we have, um, you know, on one side, the, the magic happens when you connect and you bridge between these farmers and the people that are driving the food transformation on the ground. And on the other side, the consumers through stories and innovation and the projects that we have uh, happening. Uh, for instance, our Danone yogurt brand has made different collaborations around the world um, and, and actually working on many projects with our farmers around, uh, for example, in Spain, in Romania, in France, and in particular, there's a project that is, is, is close to my heart because it's actually in Mexico, um, where we've been working for over 10 years on a project called Project Mar Margarita. And I think what's, what's really interesting is in Mexico, there's actually a milk deficit. Uh, Mexico is the second largest milk powder importer in the world. So actually, there's a real big need to work in actually strengthening that supply of, of milk and working directly with the farmers. And we've been for 10 years incorporating regenerative agriculture practices with uh, over 500 small-scale producers. By doing so, we've helped reduce carbon emissions, better the soil, water management, and actually increase the revenue by uh, tripled the, the farmers' revenues. And the reality is we never communicated. You know, we had this project for 10 years and it's, it's, it's a really interesting and really beautiful story. And only last year that we actually say, okay, you know, people want to know about these farmers. They want to know what we're doing with them. And so the Danone brand started to build the connection and the, and the, and in, in integrating this project into the communication and brought it to life with uh, a Danone yogurt called uh, Leche de Origen. So milk from the origins. And it's basically telling all these stories, talking about all the impact in a very simple, concise way, intangible through our products. And I, I just remember when I first saw the report that you guys uh, just, um, just, just released, I love how you're making that connection very real. You have examples of products and innovations and storytelling. And so in a way you're, you're helping 
also people that read the report, and especially, you know, brand owners or food designers to see the possibilities in connecting, you know, that value chain that the people behind the food and the farmers who in a way are going to make the transformation with the end uh, buyer. So businesses are beginning to set these ambitions to become regenerative, using their influence to create design changes in the system, and they're sort of trying to work this out on the fly. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please subscribe to get updated every time we share new content. Thanks for listening to the Ellen MacArthur Foundation Circular Economy podcast. Don't forget to share, rate and subscribe.